Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 154. Today's episode is one that is actually really overdue. It's with my business partner at CSP Florida, and it's one we were actually going to record all the way back in 2020, and then life got crazy with the pandemic, and we kind of pushed it back. And it was actually a real blessing in disguise because since then, he's developed really, really heavily in the manual therapy realm, and a lot of really cool research has, has come out on the benefits of manual therapy why it works better in some people than others, why certain approaches may be more suited to certain presentations. Uh, so I'm actually glad we waited. And, you know, he's just one of the most talented guys in the world and has really impacted my career favorably, both in the context of teaching me on the, on the daily basis, giving me a sounding board to bounce ideas off of and challenging me in ways that I hadn't previously thought about, but also in the way that he's really taken amazing care of so many of our athletes, you know, from youth sports all the way up to, you know, some of these guys that you see throwing in huge games on TV, um, just a really, really good guy and a really great clinician that I think um, has a lot to share. So this podcast is an excellent representation of that. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive NSF certified for sport daily nutritional supplement I've ever tried. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients they need to thrive. As a father of three young kids and a co-founder of multiple businesses in multiple states, on top of still being an avid exerciser, I know that busy schedules can really take their toll on us. Whether it's poor sleep, exercise or life stressors, environmental factors, or simply not eating enough of the right foods, we can wind up deficient nutritionally. This is where Athletic Greens can really help. It's a game-changing nutritional insurance policy. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things. And that's why I use it daily and recommend it to our athletes. One scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. They work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase energy and focus, aid in digestion, recovery, and supporting of a healthy immune system. This all can happen without taking multiple products. While most nutritional products come to market and stay stagnant, Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53 improvements over the last decade. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best daily nutritional habit on the planet. It's lifestyle-friendly, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. They put 75 ingredients to the NSF for Sport certification to come up with a formula that's trusted by some of the world's best athletes, including our own. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving our listeners 10 free travel packets with their subscription. Simply go to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy to receive my offer. These travel packs are perfect for supporting your immune system, energy, and gut health when you're traveling for games, training, or simply when you're on the go. They can be a great counterbalance to less than ideal on-the-road food options. So if you want to bridge the gap between deficient and optimal and give yourself the best chance to get nutrient diversity, then head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and get your 10 free travel packets today. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. Today's guest is Vice President and Co-Founder of Cressy Sports Performance Florida. Prior to joining the CSP team, he co-founded Athletic Development Performance, a Jupiter-based sports performance facility that worked with youth, collegiate, and professional athletes across multiple sports, but they did have a heavy emphasis in baseball and lacrosse. 
He's also a licensed massage therapist. In addition to his work as a manual therapist with CSP athletes, he served as a manual therapist for the Miami Dolphins since 2018. Across these roles, he works extensively on athletes from professional baseball, golf, tennis, and football. An International Youth Conditioning Association Certified High School Strength and Conditioning Coach, he's been published in U.S. Lacrosse Magazine, MLB.com, and he also hosts U.S. Lacrosse's Coaches Education Video Series. He coached the Benjamins High School's lacrosse team from 2010 to 2017, along the way guiding them to two state titles, one state final, and four state semifinal appearances. He won U.S. Lacrosse South Florida Coach of the Year awards in 2009 and 2017, Palm Beach Post Coach of the Year in 2014, 16, and 17, and the Sun Sentinel Coach of the Year in 2014 and 17. He was also the offensive and defensive coordinator for Dwyer High School during their 2009 state championship season. He's a certified trainer for U.S. Lacrosse's Coaches Education Program, and as an athlete, he was a two-time all-conference selection and first-team all-tournament selection as a lacrosse player at Belmont Abbey. Please welcome to the show my business partner, Shane Rye. Shane, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me. I begrudgingly accept. No, just kidding. <laughs> I was actually going to lead into this. Like, uh, it's hilarious because normally you have like this, you know, this text from afar to like set this up. And we literally spend practically every living moment of our, our professional lives together. So there'll probably be a lot more busting of chops on this podcast than, than anyone we've done, but that'll make it more endearing to the, to the listeners. Yeah, no doubt about it. Right on. Um, so I obviously know your story. We've been attached at the hip basically for the last nine years, but I do think it's probably appropriate for, for everyone else to, you know, to get a little insight, you know, not just into, you know, why we're talking about manual therapy with you, but maybe your path to this entire athletic development field and, you know, in sports medicine kind of, um, you know, concurrent path. So what got you to here? <laughs> um, actually, I think the original aspect was um, like being born two months early and mm-hmm. having like a, a kind of like a bunch of issues. So obviously we're talking where the eighties here. Mm-hmm. Um and then like, I actually didn't know this until like a few years ago, but my mom was like, yeah, like you coded, like I didn't see you for a couple of days. And so, uh, the doctors had told my mom like, oh, you'd probably never play sports or do anything like that. And then as I was, um, as I was growing up, once I hit like puberty stage, I remember I'm like playing basketball and like, I just pass out and like, they can't necessarily figure out why. And so I end up seeing uh, one doctor who actually tried to put a pacemaker in me, um, at like 13 or 14, he's like, Oh, you're never going to do any, play any sports again. And obviously like I'm crying, you know, at this point. And my mom fortunately had worked in a cath lab for like almost 20 years. And so she was uh, pretty good with the question. So I had to see a different doctor, uh, at Penn state and go through all these random tests and, you know, the halter monitors and, uh, I mean, it was years and years of testing, but had to consistently pass stress tests year after year to, to keep playing um, sports. And then eventually somewhat kind of like grew out of the condition um, that, you know, that they weren't 100 percent sure what was going on with that. But um, that kind of led me into a little bit of like, you know, training stuff. Well, can we be in better shape? Like, how can we? you know, help keep some of this stuff at bay. Cause I never forget like running up a incline treadmill, um, for like 20 minutes. And they're like, well, if you get above a level seven, then you're not going to be able to play it. I'm dying. I'm like, Oh, I'm like a three. Um, <laughs> but then, um, my, my senior year of high school, I, I blocked a punt and, um, like my knee, like I just, I heard it, like it kind of exploded. 
And uh, I'll never forget like trying to get up and it was in practice too. So it wasn't even like a cool story. (laughs) Oh, like it changed the game or anything. Like it was a practice point. And so like my knee was um, like super swollen and I'm trying to like hop through. I'll never forget my coach, um, you know, to his credit, like he was trying to make, you know, all of us tough and maybe we need a little bit more of this sometime today. But I'm like, coach, I I don't think it can bend my knee. And he goes, how many knees did the good Lord make you with? I said, two. He goes, use the other one. Like (laughs) they work in pairs, but, um, you know, so that was kind of my initial path. And then over the course of, you know, um, years uh, after that, that that year hit like a really rough patch. It got sick and had some like personal stuff. And I had lost like a ton of weight and I was so weak. I was so, so weak. And so that kind of got my path onto strength and conditioning. Um, and then over the course of four more knee surgeries over other various, um, you know, stupid things that, that happen in sports and wrestling and things of that nature, um, kind of led me, you know, down this, this path of like the why, right. So I always used to joke with my friends, um, you know, they're out kind of like drinking on a Friday night or doing whatever, you know, we're lacrosse players. So that's, you know, imagine that lacrosse scene, but I would be like kind of reading on forums or like trying to read through like super training, which was awful, but, um, but it's super insightful at the same time. And so that kind of led me into the kind of the strength and conditioning field and, um, you know, kind of where we are today. Yeah. And, you know, it's a funny joke, like you and, and Brian Kaplan and I co-founded this business and you had bum knees, I had a bum shoulder and he had thoracic outlet before it was cool. Like we literally checked every sports medicine box working inferior to superior as we, as we founded the business. But, you know, we got going and, and we first started out, you were, you're obviously a really accomplished lacrosse coach, but also obviously a strength and conditioning coach. And right when the business kind of started up, you were, you were dipping your feet, I guess, in the shallow end of manual therapy. And, you know, I kind of endeavored to really make that your own. And, and obviously it's, it's, it's taken off in a, in a huge way. You know, the, the clientele you see is, you know, is next level and you're involved on some really high profile cases. You know, what was it that drew you to manual therapy? Um, you know, in, in the first place, where did you see that fitting into, you know, what, who you were personally, obviously our big, our big picture offering as well. Um, honestly, it started with like, uh, you know, probably Dwight locally, um, a local PT. And we had to, when we had our original gym, the people who we were renting our place from, uh, had kids who were athletes and one had a particularly really bad, um, back issue. And so we were somewhat you know, originally I said, you know, jokingly said coerced to, to work with a local PT, but he had really good hands and, um, kind of shed some, a different light on things of this, you know, manual therapy and what it does a lot of trigger point and, you know, still kind of trying to review the body systemically. Um, but I was like, what, what, what is this? Like, how am I, how, how have I gone through five knee surgeries and, um, you know, three, legitimate rehabs and two of which were kind of on my own, but like, how have, how have we not like discovered this? So I saw like the initial kind of like, uh, you know, we're have ADD, we're guys that's we like quick fix on thing. I'm like, Oh wow. That, you know, makes your back pain feel a lot better, you know, or, or your knee pain, whatever that might be. So that was kind of my initial thing. So we were kind of dabbling for a few years. So I would say it was probably like 2012 or 13. And um, we also, we didn't have a chance, uh, the school I was coaching at at the time, we, we were away at, uh, we didn't have any uh, field space at the school cause they hadn't had a turf field yet. So I was essentially trying to act as like a, 
very poor athletic trainer at the time um, when we were away, whether it may have, you know, at, at practice or whether it may have been wrapping an ankle or something like that. You just, we kind of had to do what we had to do. So that ended up coming into play quite a bit with, you know, kids that were hurt or trying to just address the situation at the time. So, you know, and then finally we had like random people and you remember what that little shack used to look like that we were (laughs) training people out of, but like a couple random people were like, Oh, I heard you could help my shoulder feel better, you know, showing up at the door. And I'm like, I don't know who these people are. I'm like, I'm totally going to get in trouble if I don't get certified for something <laughs> like mm-hmm. this is totally going to be illegal. Um, and didn't want to go out of my scope even more than maybe I already had. So um quickly kind of went back and had a crazy nine months of massage school and, you know, getting up early and, you know, training clients and then also going to lacrosse practice and doing that. So that kind of led me into that manual therapy path. But I think the big thing was when, obviously when we came together um, and one of the reasons for coming together was like, you don't like not one person was doing everything anymore. And so we were able to share some, um, you know, share some synergies, but also like kind of be able to like, Hey, where's a void in our business right now that this could be helpful. Right. Like I hated the accounting side. You a hundred percent, you know, like I, I just, that wasn't me. Um, so I think this was like an area that we could help fill the void. And, and more importantly, um, for athletes and the baseball players in general, having those off seasons where they're not having to search, to try to find and go outside and try to find a different PT to do this. And then a different, you know, throwing partner, you know, where cap kind of came in and trying to circle all that around made it a lot more convenient and easier to, and, and desirable for that matter to kind of push forward into manual therapy, knowing like, Hey, we have other people that can write strength and conditioning programs yeah. here. Like have to be out there all the time. I, I, the, the, the follow-up question to that is, it's one thing to get licensed. It's another thing to get really, really good, you know, like coveted where, you know, athletes are wanting to fly you all over creation and, and obviously come in just to see you. And, and, you know, the schedule gets packed very, very quickly. I know I have my perspectives on, on why you were so good so fast, but I'm curious what you think allowed you to, to like achieve such a high level proficiency and, you know, and popularity with, with potential, you know, clients so quickly. What do you think did it for you? Uh, I think a lot of stubbornness. Honestly, like in, in many respects, um, yeah. you hate not knowing why, which yeah. is kind of ironic that we're talking about manual therapy right now and yeah. wanting to know the why of it, considering that yeah. for since the existence of manual therapy, it's been really hard to prove the why, you know, other than anecdotally. Um, so I think that was a big part of it. But I always tried to view it through uh, kind of a strength and conditioning and, and yeah. athletic lens. And so I think that was probably most helpful for me. And because I didn't have... Um, like a super, super formal training in school um, that can both help and hurt you at times, but it was a being able to think outside the box. Cause you didn't have like this narrow lens of like, well, the book said it must be this. So it has to be this. Cause this is what we do with somebody who has insert name of injury here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that was really, really helpful, but being able to try to piece stuff together, watch them move uh, it was helpful. And then I think, and, and I think this is super, super underrated. And, and people think that this, I, I might be joking when I say this, but like having uh, a room that's uh, in an office, that's like a locker room for people mm-hmm. becomes very, very comfortable um, yeah. for guys to just kind of relax, make them feel like they're, you know, in the clubhouse or in the locker room or, or be themselves. I think, you know, I'll share my side of it is one, you're a voracious reader. Like I know you're 
absolutely absurdly meticulous with your your continuing education stuff and the, and the work you put in there. The other thing, I, I think there's just something to be said. Like I've seen you like pissed off when the hour ends and you haven't found the solution yet. Like I've seen you climbing on top of tables, like pouring sweat because it's, it's not just about like babysitting somebody for an allotted time. It's about getting the desired outcome, you know, no matter what it takes. I think that that resonates with people, um, you know, really, really heavily. And you know, the other thing too, is like, you, you kind of hinted at, but you were a football lacrosse and wrestler, like three sports that take a ton of physical exertion. You kind of have to embrace the suck and all of those like manual therapy is hard. Like you, you, you got a thumb in somebody's armpit for, you know, all these hours and, you know, it beats you up. And, and I've heard people joke that like the useful life of a massage therapist is like three years because it is so physically taxing. And I, and I think one of the things that you probably do well that I'm realizing is like you contort your body in so many different positions to work on people on a daily basis that you, you very rarely get into kind of that pattern overload just because you it's such an interactive session where people aren't just laying there like you're actually getting them moving as you treat. Um, I think people see that you know, it's like watching a coach that stands still and has their arms crossed and doesn't interact with you versus like someone who's really involved in the entire treatment. I think that goes a really really long way in creating a, you know, a a favorable outcome for people. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I think them just knowing you care, you know, at that point is super important, but I think people appreciate that um, ultimately in in the long run that you're not just like staring at the the clock the entire time. But Mm -hmm. I think one of the other underrated things is, is, is the ability to be able to, uh, you know, whether it's you or any of our other coaches being able to go out and say, Hey, here's, here's what we just found. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I had no idea that until we touched X, Y, Z here, here's what we're currently seeing as a favorable change. Um, maybe we substitute this exercise or we deviate this certain exercise and maybe you elevate a foot or you, you know, you, you change the position of whatever they might be doing at the time to be able to like make it an impactful change, you know, immediately following a session or whether that's in their, you know, whatever they're going to be doing the next few days in their program. So, and I think that's wildly, wildly helpful to be able to consistently, you know, cause we're still obviously using Excel and things of that nature, but our programs are constantly, they're organisms that are constantly moving and we're mm-hmm. able to adapt based upon what we see uh, of that athlete on that given day. You, you hinted at it and, and I've joked about this, you know, massage has been on cave paintings for, you know, four or 5,000 years. Um, but it's been somewhat loosely defined why manual therapy works, if at all. And, and I think we should dig in on that. And, and maybe the first place to start, you know, for maybe more of our, our, our novice listeners who aren't like knee deep in this stuff on a daily basis. Like, let's talk about the fascial system, you know, what it is, what does it do? What does it do? How do, how do you explain it to your, your clients? Um, we're trying to outline what it is that you're actually treating and, and trying to favorably impact. Yeah. So I think like one of the tools and, you know, it, it's, it's definitely like a hammer for me is probably like uh, fashion manipulation, you know, definitely from Stecco stuff and kind of got way more into that over the last few years. Um, but it doesn't always make sense to the clients and it honestly doesn't always make sense to us in the, in the given moment uh, at times. So when you have somebody who comes in um and they're like, well, my back hurts. Why are you looking at my knee? You know, for example, when they, when that comes in, the easiest example I like to use is just, you know, and, and we kind of did this the other day as we just start like, Hey, I'm going to start pulling down your shorts. And inevitably as you start pulling down their shorts, um, they're going to grab their waistband and, and pull it up real quick. And they're like, you know, so what's wrong with your pants? You're like, Oh, I felt my waistband pulling down. I'm like, yes, that's what you felt 
Um, but the area and the issue and the concern for me was me pulling, you know, down here at your ankle or down here at your knee. Um, so I think that kind of helps set the tone a little bit, you know, obviously for our, 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 you know, for our football guys and explaining that to them is like, you know, if I'm a outside linebacker and you're a defensive end and you're trying to bliss the quarterback, but you're supposed to go inside and I'm supposed to go outside, but we're stuck together. Well, we kind of blow up and occasionally make some good plays, but now we've affected everybody else's alignment behind us. And we're not really good at, I'm not good at doing your job and you're not good at doing my job. Um, so I think that that's, that's like super, super important and, and helpful in trying to illustrate the point, um, especially when people are skeptical of, well, it hurts here, please push here, you know, um, type of, of questions. But I mean, fascia is really just like a thin layer of connective tissue surrounds, uh, you know, our organs, our blood vessels, our bones, our nerve fibers kind of holds our, our muscles into place. Um, but it's also super sensitive. Right. The innervation of fascia is very similar to, to skin in some of the studies that they reviewed. So so it is very, very sensitive and can kind of give us like a tactile feel as, as well. Um, and it's filled with mechanoreceptors and how it senses the world. So that's so that's really important. And as far as like talking about musculoskeletal pain or, or, you know, especially people who've been in in chronic pain, um, you know, there's some studies out there that that really, really dive into the fascia in and of itself and its role in, in chronic pain. Um, matter of fact, for, for that matter, if you go through some of the Steco stuff and they're level three and level four, they, they talk a lot about like internal dysfunction. Um, and that if, you know, if the liver is supposed to sit here and it's not sitting there, is it creating an inflammatory response, right? You have people come in who have so as tension or, or whatever. And, you know, sometimes those people have gut disorders and there's lymph, you know, right there too. And so I think the fascia kind of helps us have like a, a better interplay of seeing the body systemically, not to mention it, it is pretty important in force transmission as well. Yeah. Um, especially across multiple planes and vectors. Um, I know. And one of the things that I find you talking about the, the most is hands, feet, and head. Like yeah. that, that, that all like lines lead to that. Maybe, maybe elaborate on that a little bit for, for our crew as we, you know, as we kind of start digging on this in that anatomical basis. I mean, I think that was probably one thing that I didn't take into enough account, you know, in my younger years. Um, and honestly, one of the frustrations that kind of led me to doing more fascia manipulation work was like, you know, that you released the glute or, you know, that you released it and they feel better. And like, well, why is it coming back so quickly? And that means there's something going on there that we haven't correctly identified or something else in this, in this body that we're not uh, identifying. So, you know, the hands, the feet and the head, um, you know, that's always my pop quiz for people when they come in, that's where it all starts or stops, you know, depending on what your viewpoint is. So, you know, if like you look at like the retinaculum, for example, in an ankle, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a stabilizing structure in many respects because you know it doesn't have a you know a hip you know a hip has a nice hip capsule right uh, an ankle can easily be dislocated compared to a hip but all of those um you know little muscles are going down into there and then obviously they they sway out into into the feet the fascia does and how that retinaculum can be pulled and pulled on and how those tissues and tendons are sliding and gliding there can be very very impactful from a from a global perspective, especially in your brain and how it senses the world around you. Um, 
I know a couple of people in the fashion manipulation circle had had like a, you know, hypothesis that when you have like what they call densification or you have stuff, you know, for example, in your hands, that it actually throws your body's perception off of where that actual end range is of that move or where your hands are. Um, you know, maybe when you're completing a, a pitch and how that can somehow throw that off, uh, how your body and your brain perceives that. That's fascinating. I mean, you know, so you, you alluded obviously to fashion manipulation and something that you you obviously have your your you know personal preferences for, especially over the last couple of years. Like maybe outline what the tools are that need to be in the toolbox and, and then maybe more globally, like why is it important to have more than one tool in that toolbox for, for different people, different scenarios? Yeah, so I think like you know early on um with with some of the other modalities whether it was trigger point or or active release a lot of times like you're learning really good stuff like and you're diving into to deep anatomy um but I think the one thing that really helped as far as like the fashion manipulation model um was you know, again, I, I want to do a preface that if you're viewing the world through that model because different models are, are viewed differently um was that there was more of a system there that made a lot more sense. There was always a, you know, I always used the joke, like you and I are going on a cross country road trip. And if we don't have a roadmap, I don't know where the heck we're going to end up at. <laughs> um, and we might end up at some cool places from time to time, but we might end up in some bad places too. So I think the fashion manipulation aspect, um, that that's probably like my main tool, but you know, if, if it's a, if it's a day before, you know, a starter start, um, and you know that, you know, that let's say that uh, you, ha- you have a pitcher and they're experiencing some type of, um, I don't call it anterior shoulder pain. Um, and then you find out as you're going through your exam, like that they broke their wrist as a kid. And you go down there and you start palpating and you find their particular, you know, center of fusion or center of coordination, which is just, you know, fancy terms of where their densification is um, and how that aligns to um, where they might feel their pain. Like, I'm not always sure that it's in their best interest and that's, you know, it's a world series and you're trying to, you know, really win that game. Um, it's in their best interest to, you know, go dig in too much in that area. I think there's other, you know, therapists that, that, that maybe would, um, but being able to be on a field and watching the velocity of movements, whether that's a, a baseball pitcher's shoulder, um, uh, whether it's a hitter swinging, um, or, or, you know, for me every Sunday watching the speed at, at, at which they move, um, being on the field and leaving them with an increased inflammation uh, could potentially create uh, a negative outcome for them, in, in my opinion. So in that case, that's when I, you know, you kind of jump back on to a different tool that's like, maybe it is an active release. Maybe it is, um, you know, a, a, an FR release. Maybe it is a pales rails. Maybe it is a trigger point. Um, and that to me is really more of just trying to get them through that game um, you know, jab, jab, jab. So you can kind of hit them with a knockout punch, uh, yeah. hopefully after that game. So I think it's important to be able to be, you know, when it comes close to game day, the mentality of a player too, right. I think that's important too. Uh, you know, we have guys who come in all the time who, you know, it might be a Saturday night and they want cupping, like I'm going to do it if that's what they want, because that's what they think that they're going to be helpful and prepared. But if I know that a guy has um, let's say he, he has a hamstring pull. And one of the things that you'll find and you'll hear me, you know, I've referenced this a couple of times now is you go through your health history and that's important because half the time people are going to forget, you know, what they hurt. Um, and 
when you're going through it, you realized, hey, they had like a really nasty rolled ankle as a kid. And that laid them up for like a couple of weeks. But, oh, but that was 15 or 20 years ago. Um, and, and that's not going to matter now. Uh, you know, that's the joke with the older clients when they come in with neck pain. Uh, I usually like, hey, when did you break your foot or hurt your ankle? <laughs> you know, right? You can't compensate anymore. You've hit the last of your joints that you can compensate at. <laughs> um, but if I know that I have to like, you know, he rolled his ankle and there's still some, you know, a fascial disturbance or densification. I think what was, uh, I can't remember the name of the study, but I think in the rat models that it was like as little as three weeks that you can start getting, you know, a hyaluron buildup or a lack of hyaluron where, where tissues, especially at your mono and biarticular fibers as they can't, as they don't cross, right. They don't slide and glide the way that we want them to. And so if you think about that, and that may have been years and years and years ago, that that may have happened, like we don't necessarily know what impact that's going to have on a back problem that may have, you know, happened 10 or 15 years later. Um, but in the case of the hamstring, like I can't in, in good conscience, like really dive in on that calf right then and there and try to hang out on it for, you know, two to 30 minutes. I think that's what most of the literature says mm-hmm. and create an inflammatory response rate before they're going to go play. Or I can't go look at the coach and be like, hey, so-and-so's down today, so I hope you can adjust your practice plan. Or yeah. so I think I mean, that's, I, that's important. I, have I think your, your point about like hammering home like the health history is huge. Like I, I'm even blown away at how rarely we see people list like the medications they're on and, and <laughs> stuff like that. There's so many different uh, things that can jump in. Like when you see a clean health history, you really have to pry and see if they were just like racing through it, not really interested in fully filling it out. I think that's a really valid point. Um, what, one follow-up question I did have for you is, you know, there, there are different approaches, right? There's certainly, you know, more focal strategies. You know, you talked about trigger point, obviously like dry needling is about as, as focal as it comes. And you have stuff that's more, you know, diffuse where you're, you know, maybe it's a, you know, instrument assisted modality or like a cupping with dragging or something like that. Like, um, you know, do you see a place like personally, I've never felt really great from dry needling. You, you throw a cup on me and, and drag it around. I feel like a million bucks. I'm, I'm very responsive to something that I guess has those distraction properties, you know, what's your, like big picture look on it? Like, obviously this speaks to the different things in the toolbox, but do you see any general tendencies on when you might use certain things with certain people? Yeah, I mean, sure. Uh, first and foremost, um, it's probably preference for people. Like a lot of times when you see people, they may or may not like cupping. Um, they may or may not like needling. Um, you know, needling for me, like I, it, I've i always found it very beneficial, for example, in my hips, but didn't felt that it did much on my shoulder, right? And is I don't know if that's maybe we didn't hit the right areas or whatever that might be. Um, I feel like a lot of times when, when people are uh, very, very tense, it just in general, like you can tell when that guy has like a stiffer fascial sling or they're just stiffer people. I think they tend to like cupping and the dragging with it. Um, but I, I think it's working a little bit differently than, than maybe we perceive because I, it, no matter what, whether we're talking about a PRI model or we're talking about a compression and expansion model or we're talking about a manual therapy model, what, no matter what that is, I think at the end of the day, all we're really trying to do is is manipulate fluid and and, and move fluid or get it to start to move in an area or get it moving out of an area, you know, in, in a case of like an acute injury, for example. Um, so when you have cupping, for example, like some people love going through that through movement. I think um, if you were to ask somebody who is 
you know, like doing stecco, for example, or doing like a, a deeper uh, type of work, if you will. I think when you look at that, like cupping is still like we could probably put a, a cup on a CC, you know, or, or a densification and let it hang out there for a few minutes and create um, a difference in the fluid and the viscoelasticity of that. And matter of fact, there was a was the study that they talked about. Um, it just came out it was the effect of the range of motion or it was out. Of, uh, I'm sorry, a few years ago it was the effect on the range of motion of uh, neck range of motion, for example, and how the lower limb stretching on that actually dramatically changed, you know, flexion and extension patterns. And in this particular study, they found like the, um, the specific things they, that the hamstring, for example, was more impactful for them than, than was uh, the adductor. Um, so I think, that was probably like, that's a big ticket for me of trying to really realize like, Hey, where we think it is, it ain't. I think that was a, an Ida Roth <laughs> quote. Yeah. And so like to your, to, to answer your question, um, in that case, I'm, I'm probably doing a little bit of cupping for guys, you know, mm-hmm. especially if they like it. Um, but I'm also tr- probably trying to plant the seeds of, and trying to dig in a little bit deeper of like, how can we have a longer term result here? Right. Mm-hmm. So we know that for the most part, um, that research indicates that you need to be on something for at least two minutes before you have a, a, a positive effect. Like if you were to look at, you know, some of the stecco work or FR stuff, which piggybacked some of the, the stecco work, you know, in, in their world, they have mechanical versus neural tension, right? Like, is it, uh, is it a localized thing in that muscular or fascial system that is not allowing whatever you need that, that particular joint or muscle to do to, to properly do that? or is it a brain thing where it's just such a co-contraction of all the muscles around there that that's going to be more of a therex and a strictly therex thing for a period of time? So I just think it's important to have those different tools. Yeah. I mean, maybe jump in and, and I want to dig in on maybe the baseball specific aspect, but but before we get there, I think it's, it's important to stay more, more I guess, you know, 30,000 foot view is maybe talk about some of the common mistakes that we see in the manual therapy community. Um, you know, what, what are a few that, that jump out at you? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it, it, there's a couple, right? It's hurts here, push here. And I might be the worst with that, to be honest with you. Like when <laughs> you get treatment at times, like I've, I've had treatment and uh, I'm like, listen, I know that this is uh, not really my issue, but I still want you to touch here because it makes <laughs> me feel better, right? Um, but I think it's like hurts here, touch here. I think it's an incomplete um, medical history. But I think the biggest one for me that always pops up into my mind and is really, really resounding is just because you and I have the same shoulder pain doesn't mean we have the same cause, even if it's in the exact same location, because we are very different. Um, our histories are very different. Uh, I just don't think people spend enough time on it either. Right. Like, so a lot of times when we're going to give guys follow-up stuff, right? Like if I'm going to go and I've had, you know, some weirdo, uh, sciatic pain, for example, that was not truly discogenic in nature. Um, you know, we'll see guys rolling and stuff like that, but that's not like fascia can't, we can't make it adapt that way. Fluid's not going to, it's going to move like a little bit, but we're not going to get more of a permanent result, um, of that. So it, what I'm going to have a guy lay on a tennis or lacrosse ball, you know, maybe in that glute minimus area, for example, let's say we identified that that was helpful for them. Uh, we're going to have to have them lay there for, you know, three, four, five minutes sometimes. And I would rather focus in 
on that particular area for, you know, three to five minutes than worrying about rolling 15 other things. Like I want to really focus in and make sure that that area is really taken care of. Um, so I think when, when we're looking at manual therapy, I'd rather be more specific. I might treat six to eight spots in a particular session. And I want to know that those spots aren't magically going to appear the next day. And I think that that kind of goes back to that question earlier, um, which is when we're making these, when we're, when, we're, when we're hanging out on spots or we're trying to treat particular areas, we need to spend the time needed in order for that tissue to be able to restore its sliding and gliding and its viscoelastic properties. Otherwise, we're kind of sort of doing something neural where we're like, you know, down-regulating the, the, the pain and the reception in our brains and, and how that perceives the world. But we're not actually making a change to that tissue by going too fast. Um, I think the other thing, uh, mistake that people make, and, and I mean, you hear me say this often, like, I don't want you to need me. Mm -hmm. I'm here as a small tool. It is nothing more than a segue for you to hopefully feel better, maybe perform a little bit better, but I'm not going to make you throw a hundred miles an hour. Maybe we unlock something, you know, it's really, you know, and that's really cool when that happens. Um, but I'm not magically going to make that. So I think there's this, this world of, of dependency and need. Now, that's not to say that people won't want to get touched and treated because there's something to be that, that, that feels good about that. Like flushes after a game are really good, but we're, what are we really doing in a flush? We're, we're moving fluid, right? Like that, that's what we're doing. And so I think that that's really important to, to, to realize like for me is like, I'm just one piece of that. I'd much rather have them out on the training floor doing good training than hanging out in my office. Um, and, and that them really, really wanting to need me. So I think that's something you see a lot in the, the professional world is this like dependency and need and where guys are like, well, if I don't get my X, Y, Z and they start getting worked up over it, I'm like, dude, you were good well before you ever, <laughs> you know, had this yeah. be good well after this. Yeah. Depend dependency is a scary thing in, in this realm. Um, you know, I do, I do think we see people who are like rock star manual therapists that, you know, can create that sense of dependency. And before you know it, they're, you know, selling people all kinds of different snake oils and things like that. I, I love the idea of like, no, this is the avenue to go back and, and fix yourself, you know, to, to build like a robust foundation of work capacity and movement, you know, quality to, to keep you resilient. Um, you know, the other thing I was going to ask you for is, is, you know, I think one of the biggest things is protecting its downside, like knowing what to treat and what not to treat. Like I know over the years we've seen some stuff come in and where you're like, I'm not touching that. Like I, I just get a bad feeling about this. Maybe, you know, talk about some of those examples. What, what, what should people be, be leery of just like racing to get treated for? Yeah. I mean, I think a couple of things like number one, um, you know, obviously we had that one uh, person who had come in with chronic pain and that goes back to the, the health history, like be like really vigilant with, knowing what medications they're taking. Cause you know, I didn't know that she was on a super high dose of a blood thinner. And even though like, you know, we were super gentle, like a very, very gentle, you know, the, the marks that were there and the bruising that she had a day or so after, you know, obviously freaked her out, but I had no idea, you know, that we were there. Um, I think it's really important. Like, obviously we've had a, a you know, people over the years with, with TOS, I've had a few people with clots. I'm um, obviously, I don't think the studies are like, there's some tests that you can do out there of whether it may or may not be a clot, but I'm not sure. I really want to uh, rest my laurels on how good we are or aren't at them. But I mean, you know, we had that one story, a lot of it's gut feeling sometimes, but when you start, obviously any swelling, right? Like we had, uh, you know, a local, uh, a girl come in who had had 
this swelling in her in her arm and she had seen a bunch of doctors and I'm like, okay. And they're like, yeah, no, no, no. They said we're clear. Like we, we, you know, they actually recommended that we come see you. And they're like, well, what gives you swelling? Right. Well, anytime my arms over my head, I'm like, okay. And not like starting to get a little concerned there. I'm like, well, what else? Well, now it happens when I'm writing. I'm like, okay, that's like a hands-off, you know, right away. Yeah. That's like a, you have to know when to refer out and I'd rather refer out and uh, at that point, then, then try to be a superhero. Like you can't be all things to all people. Like, it's just not going to happen. Um, you know, obviously we had the case of the one kid who had the, the blood clot and we made him go to the hospital for that. Right. And even the doctor didn't want to get him an ultrasound. Fortunately, he had the wherewithal to, to push him around a little bit. And, you know, he ended up having that massive blood clot in his leg. Um, and that, you know, when you start feeling these like weird global things, when you start seeing uh, excessive swelling, that doesn't make sense. That's not like an acute injury. Things like that are important, you know, pins and needles, um, you know, any disturbances, you know, in the revision and things like that. Um, you know, and sometimes like people, you know, I've had people who have like coming off like panic attacks and, and things of that nature as well. Um, so those things are all really, really kind of important. And you have to know like when it's better to punt those and, and not punt those. But basically anytime that you see those really weird swelling cases, I'm like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to be hands off on that until we have a, a better diagnosis. But honestly, a lot of times, uh, for, for many of those folks, it's the first time that they may or may not have had a problem, right? We had the, the, the player last year that came in and we're reviewing his health history. And I'm like, dude, like, I think you have TOS. Like, look at all these symptoms, look at all this stuff, you know, you know, popping around and, and, and you may or may not have it right. But you want to put them in the, the appropriate doctor's hands who can better diagnose them. And you see that a lot with with things like TOS, where people may have been you know, undiagnosed for four or five years. And again, you're just trying to be a tool to try to piece those things together for them. Absolutely. You know, you hinted at the importance of like the evaluation obviously begins with a thorough health history and, and even prying. But I also know one of the things that you, you, you hang your hat on a lot is like, it's a, it's a reevaluation, right? It's a constant test retest, um, you know, during the, the actual treatment. I, I can't tell you how many times in a day, like I see someone like come out of your office and then just like throw the plow care ball against the wall a little bit, just to see how it's moving. Um, after you've done some kind of intervention, like, you know, speak to like where, um, that fits in, like how often you retest, you know, what your, your mindset is with respect to testing the waters of that stuff. I think originally a lot of times, um, what you've seen certainly in, in the manual world is you see a lot of muscle testing, right? Like, and for me, I think that that can be a slippery slope where you're like, Oh, it's stronger. And a lot of times it is stronger. Right. But like, if they don't perceive that, well, like, I, I, I'm not going to put that thought in their head. Like if they're like, oh, this is stronger, but it still really hurts every time I lay my arm back, then that's not going to necessarily matter to me. Um, now, is that a tool to get there? Yes. Yeah. So I think what we need to do is, is, is usually what I like to do is say, hey, what are the two or three things that are bothering you most right now? And then you try to figure that out, right? So whatever the one is the easiest, you know, we had the kid with the, the back issue was after two or three minutes every day my back bothers me. Well, that's a really easy thing to test. So we're going to do some treatment and then you're going to sit here for two or three minutes and we're going to see if anything changes. Um, you know, and then we progress to, Hey, at the bottom of a split squat that bothers my back. So then we did the split squat. And then lastly it was okay. Running still bothers my back. So I'm like, all right, well let's go run. So for an athlete, especially, you know, ultimately the only thing that they don't care if their manual muscle test is better. They care if they can lay their arm back and they can whip the ball. 
against the wall, you know, for example, in this case. Um, but I think it's also important for, uh, you know, manual therapist or strength coach in general to know what looks right and what doesn't. Like you can see when a guy goes and lays his arm back and he starts getting really pushy versus that like natural layback. And that's what I love about fascia, right? Because how it connects to the brain is a little bit different maybe than what our muscles um, do and the mechano receptors and how they interact like it's not uncommon to, to see somebody who hasn't been able to do a, a movement we had the one you know the the golfer guy who had trouble looking left for for years and years and years and after like some treatment obviously and weirdly enough on his ankle um in that particular case uh like he got up and looked left and it was like he had never not been able to look left for the last you know you know 10 or 20 years whatever he said that it was um and so that's what I love about the, the fascial component. But ultimately, like we have to test and retest what the athlete wants because we can't lie to ourselves. Like I hate that aspect of it, right? We're like, oh, you feel better. And then the athlete's like, no, I don't. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter um, what I think you feel like. It matters. Yeah, what you don't want to lead the witness. Like, And most of the athletes that we're dealing with, even younger kids, like. So. You know, maybe this this speaks to like a, a you know this is a big question, but you know we both know there's some people out there who love to argue on social media about why there isn't you know compelling research to support that manual therapy is effective. Um, you know, we, we both know countless individuals who have benefited from it. I personally certainly feel better. I feel like I perform better when I'm, when I have regular exposures to it. You know, what would your response be to them? Like, what's what, what are the mechanisms actually that you think it is that you know, that makes manual therapy, you know, effective um, and, and why it's, you know, it's going to be a tool in our, our toolbox for many, many years to come. Well, two things. One, I don't think all manual therapy is effective mm -hmm. um, because like, you know, uh, wrong, uh, good manual therapy at the wrong place is bad manual therapy, right? Mm -hmm. Like it, it, we, we have to, we have to have some type of model, you know, even if you use a compression expansion model, right? Like, oh, I'm, have an elevated left hip, right? You know, so, and it's, I can't get out of my right hip now. And, you know, maybe that's a QL, maybe it's a oblique, whatever that might be. Maybe it's a piriformis. And so we have to have, you have to have some type of model of what you're operating under to help with that. I, I think secondly, I usually just don't argue with those people <laughs> um, <laughs> on that because ultimately there's been so many studies that, that uh, have, have come out. I mean, I just, you know, I kind of explained to the one earlier, like, the effects of the viscoelastic uh, properties of stretching a hamstring, improving the neck range of motion. I think the thing what happens with those people though, is because many manual therapists end up saying like, look at these changes that I've made. And then a day or two later, they're right back. Right. So they're very temporary changes. So even, even in that vein, I'm not like bench pressing one day and suddenly bench pressing 400 pounds. So there is a repetitious model to that. Um, that's not necessarily the model that I always ascribe to. Um, but I think part of the reason that um, people say that is because I think we're looking very, very muscularly and not fascially, right? So like if we can figure out where those, you know, mono and biarticular fibers or, you know, the tendon, whatever that might be, that's, that's holding on to the force there or isn't allowing our tissues to slide and glide correctly. I think that's where we know that, you know, your, your superficial, um, and your deep fascia, like we know, like, right. Like it's, if it's going to transfer 30% of, of force, right. And that's probably, I think probably a little bit understated. We know that how, like, like you can poke on your skin and you can see it move, right? Like we, we know that there's fluid and viscoelastic, 
the properties there that can be manipulated and changed. And I, I would say we see it every day. Like if you want, if you want a, a bunch of studies and, and people have questions on that, I'm happy to give them a, a lengthy, lengthy list of stuff from, you know, some of the, ste- uh, some of the Stecco work, um, you know, some of the Tom Myers work. Um, but we know that fascia exists all over the body and we know that it's an interconnected system. And that's what I really, really like about it. But I think people who say it doesn't exist and it's a placebo effect, either haven't had really good manual therapy and don't understand it, or they're arguing in a lens that I might not disagree with them on either. Right. Like where it's like, Oh, we, you know, we did six strokes on this and we released all the scar tissue. Like, no, you didn't like that. You definitely didn't do that. Like, it's not like the research would indicate that you didn't do that. Um, so I think with those, those folks, like we can point out, you know, a, a, a bunch of studies that they had in fascia's existence and, and how they're in a relationship with pain and restricted movement, like everything of, of that's like still really, really resolving. I think it what was it 2003, um, Carla Stecco, which was Antonio's daughter, like they ended up going through and, and they dissected so many cadavers to basically try to prove their hypothesis. And they basically verify the po- the model's hypothesis and they produced enough studies about it to find the structural differences between the specific regions, specific innervation of deep fascia and a possible mechanism of action and associated manual techniques and how they can be manipulated and how that can change that. Right. Like there's, um, and I, I don't have the ability to put it cause it's like a paid video, but you can see like under diagnostic ultrasound, the difference you know, for example, in this one video, that was an example of a guy's, uh, I want to say it was his right leg and the viscoelastic properties and how all the fibers of the, the fascia and the hyaluron between the fascia, like you can literally see them sliding and gliding next to each other. And then you can go to the other leg where he, they had sciatica existing and you can like, like you don't have to be super trained in this to be able to see there is a massive difference there. And then watching what happens from post-treatment. So we actually do have, you know, the abilities, you know, diagnostic ultrasound is actually pretty cool. And I don't think that it, it can't get down to like the super, super nitty gritty of everything, but it gives us enough of a picture to be able to like prove that, that it's there. And again, the Stegos had done plenty of studies with treatment on people who had had rolled ankles, treat people who had never rolled their ankles. And then people had had a previous ankle sprain and like those who had, you know, treatment, even on uh, a previous ankle sprain ended up faring better that soccer season than those who had never rolled an ankle. Like they had less incidents of rolled ankle and you can call that, you know, coincidence all you want, but they've been able to prove these studies over and over and time and time again. It's fascinating. Um, Maybe getting a little more granular, obviously this is a baseball podcast. Let's talk about some, some baseball presentations. I mean, obviously we see a ton of anterior shoulder pain. We see a ton of medial elbow discomfort. And these are some of the most common things you'll encounter you know, we see a lot of stuff get labeled as biceps tendonitis. Um, we know that's, you know, sometimes not the case. You know, when you look at at throwers, obviously you're digging in deep on the full health history, but what are some of the areas that you find yourself, you know, honing in on the most from a manual therapy perspective? And, and what do you need to rule in or out in this population? Above and below it. I want you to find where the pain is. And then I want to go above and below that because we want to work globally on this like tension release. So if I can go above the level of pain, so let's say, you know, I have bicep tendonitis, right? I would want to go up to that like scapular region, the neck region, and then go at least a segment below that. So maybe my bicep or even down into my forearm and try to like 
check to see where those things are at. So again, it goes back to that health history to your point. Like if I'm somebody who's having anterior shoulder pain and I had TJ three years earlier, like, you know, that's my gold right there. Like I'm almost certain most of the time that that's going to give me um, a, a great bit of relief, especially if this is new anterior shoulder pain. Now, if we have a history of anterior shoulder pain and we had an acute shoulder pain um, issue because I got, you know, hit with a line drive or something like that, obviously that changes what your your outlook's going to be on that. But I think for them, it's like always above and below. Hands are important. Thumbs are important. But, you know, for this example, let's say I do have anterior shoulder pain, but I had TJ and you know, through palpation and verification and, and um, even movement verification as well, right? Like, are we struggling moving in a, a frontal plane? Are we struggling moving in a rotational plane? Are we struggling moving in a sagittal plane? And that's not always necessarily the, the best way to identify. But if you use that as a tool with your palpation and with your verification, we might find, you know, something in there like medial septum, like down by the elbow you know, where the brachialis and, and, and bicep, and it must, it, it might just not be sliding and gliding together. So you might get this big benefit of that now where they used to feel faint elbow pain in that pronator, you know, flexor tendon area is gone, but now they have more shoulder flexion or now they have more layback. And then you might jump up above and you found their particular, let's say it's a frontal plane issue in this particular thing. Maybe you, you find something up in their neck between their posterior scaling and their trapezius, which would be uh, a counter rotation in Stecco's model in the frontal plane. And you realize like, that's really, really stiff. Um, or it's not moving the way that you want to, or it's really, really point tender. And you'll know the difference of point tender. Cause if you're poking things with like a pound or two of pressure and they start jumping and squirming, but you can poke something else with a pound or two of pressure. And then they're like perfectly calm. Like there's a disruption there. The brain is obviously sensing something there that it does not like. And so I, you know, again, in this case, I would go above and treat that and then see where we are globally. But I think when we look at, let's say, we'll call it biceps tendonitis, what, what is causing that? Well, we know that my posterior capsule, my infraspinatus and all that, like that fascia wraps around. <laughs> we know that my core cord brachialis fascia wraps around and, and intersects with my subscap. We know, like I just said, that the infraspinatus and the supraspinatus, that wrap around and intersects with my subscap, my serratus is going to intersect with my, um, subscap, uh, is my shoulder really low? Do I have some type of, uh, you know, my, my QL is going to intersect and be very, very much at play in this particular example with my lat. Um, and so all of those things are going to become really, really important in, in helping diagnose that. So when we say we have bicep tendon, maybe it is, maybe it's a legit bicep tendonitis, but we might have something going on where they can't, you know, AD duct across their body. Well, maybe I'm thinking that's something where they're, they're not sliding, gliding between the subclavius and the pec major area. And that's what's getting stuck in there. Like, and we don't really know until we palpate, but the point of maybe this long-winded answer is bicep tendonitis pain could come from a pec. It could come from a serratus. It could come from a cord cord brachialis. It could come from medial septal. It could come from an elbow, it could um, at times come from a previous broken thumb. There's a lot of different variations of stuff. So I would just always encourage people in, in that vein when they're looking for bicep tendon pain, even if you're not super familiar with stecco and fashion manipulation, which is fine, investigate some of those other areas. I can't tell you how many times we've treated people like just underneath that, that pec where the serratus starts to intersect. And then you're like, oh, my T-spine rotation got better too. That's weird. You know, and you start seeing things like that and you're like, oh, well, it 
literally fascially interplays into your obliques. But like, there's, there's a lot of other areas out there than just thinking I have bicep tendonitis. I'm going to treat my infraspinatus or I'm going to treat my bicep tendon. That's, that's a lot to unpack, but very, very important. Look everywhere is, is the short version. And don't, there's no biceps tendonitis program, right? There's, and let this be real, it's probably not an inflammatory pathology anyway. It's probably more degenerative if it is the biceps tendon. Exactly. So it's a, a whole other podcast, but um, look everywhere. Maybe speak to like individual approaches, right? You talked about like the last thing you want to do is thrash a starter the day before he goes out and pitches. Sure. You know, we also have relief pitchers where they might not know when they're going to pitch, right? And they just want to get treated. So obviously they can come in and, you know, get treated after an outing, but there's a chance that they might have to go and throw the next day. Like, how can manual therapy, you know, work effectively align with a, maybe a less predictable training cycle, uh, like a reliever versus something that's very predictable for a starter? Yeah, I think with relievers, right? Like we don't know. So they might get used three days in a row and then be shelf for 10 days. Like, you, like you, so those guys are, those guys are really, first and foremost, you just have to know who they are, right? You have to know, again, go, going back to knowing, the, knowing their medical history. At that point, like, you know, I kind of have a hat on here. I, I take this hat off of like a, you know, a Steco hat or a fashion manipulation hat, I put on a different hat and say, Hey, what routine can I get in with you? That that's going to make sense for us that, that, that we can do. And, and, you know, that honestly, that's like what we do on a Sunday morning, you know, like there's certain guys, there's a routine because we want to be as predictable as we can on game day. Um, but if a guy does have an injury that pops up, um, I always feel pretty safe if I'm treating, you know, further away from the area. Again, like in this example, and they have a bicep tendon pain, like I don't, it doesn't, I don't mind that much. Like if I'm going up into their neck a little bit more or down into their hands, um, you know, for example, a little bit more where I, I want to try to get that. But at that point, I think we have to have a conversation saying, Hey, <clears throat> this treatment's going to be a little bit longer and it's going to be a lot lighter. It's just going to take more time to get to our desired end goal. But for those guys, I think it's important to have it. Maybe they do love cupping. Like who cares? Go ahead and cup it. Maybe it's one of those things where, you know, you know, once a week they're getting needled in their, their hip and once a week they're getting needled in their shoulder. But I think for those guys, um, just from a predictability standpoint and knowing how, you know, I don't want to say superstitious, but routine oriented athletes are, it's finding a good routine for them, but there's nothing wrong with doing active release or trigger point on those guys as a, as a maintenance and, and, trying to make sure that they still feel good. I mean, right. Like we know that the brain, whether or not the mechanical issue is fixed completely or not, is neither here nor there to them at that point, right? They're the only thing that they really care about is can I go throw? So there yeah. is the, the brain down regulating that localized area of, of pain or inflammation, if you will. You've, we've talked a lot about the baseball side of things, but you know, as we alluded to earlier, like you do have an NFL role. The obvious difference is that, you know, NFL is heavily lower extremity injuries. You know, you obviously see Achilles ruptures, ACLs, hammy, hammy, hammy. The other one is, you know, we still see some of that stuff, but for the most part, it's an upper extremity focused population. You know, are, are these very, very different fish to fry? You know, are there unique distinctions between treating your NFL guys and treating your baseball guys? Obviously NFL players, you get guys that are 400 pounds, you get guys that are, you know, absolute physical specimens that are, you know, legit 6% body fat and huge dehydration risk and things like that. Um, you know, are there big like picture principles that differentiate those two populations for you? Yeah. I think the first thing I would say that's the biggest thing is, is the difference of guaranteed contracts. Like that's like, that, that, like, that's a, that's a big difference for stuff. Um, and so um, I think sometimes in the baseball world, you know, obviously if guys are in contract years and things like that, it's a little bit different, but, um, there's also 17 games in an NFL season and 
162 in a baseball season. Yeah. And so they have to be prime and ready for everything. So I do, there, there are differences there. I think a lot of times though, it's just those guys during the week, like they're, they might have meetings until five o'clock for three or four days a week. And they may have gotten in there at six or six thirty in the morning. Right. So, it, you know, on a Tuesday, they're going to have off on a Monday is a day after a game. Like a lot of guys, like you're, you're, you're hurting. <laughs> like it freaking hurts. And then, so like your big money days are really Wednesday and Thursday, but really more likely probably Thursday after practice. And you hope and pray that, that they have a fast Friday and that it's not going to be a longer where they're going to be getting accumulating too many sprint yards on a Friday. So, so you have to be careful with how sore that you make those guys, but obviously you're going to see way more hammies, right? Like in football players you're going to see way more like acute stuff and i'd say with football in general um you have to really like for me anyway um i'm kind of like a liaison in between the strength conditioning department and athletic trainers and stuff like that for me um i have to make sure like anything acute is really like we have to get that documented like i know there was one guy he's like oh you know i I, I, can you work on my hip and i'm like well it's an acute injury and there's some swelling there and you know this has happened this past year and you know and he ended up having like uh, an avulsion uh you know like that would have made that situation uh a lot lot worse um but for those guys in general um when it comes to season time i you know i stress for them like we try to try to get as much done as we can outside of season but when it comes to season time it's really trying to know your know your your person who you're working with and then picking and choosing like ah this week, I know, you know, this guy's not going to be running as much on Friday, so we can really get into him on Thursday. Um, whereas that baseball population is going to be a lot less like acute injuries of like, you know, let's get hit by a ball, right? It's going to, yeah. you're not going to have actual collisions and things of that nature. So the collisions and getting hit definitely makes things a little bit harder because there's like a, you know, an insurance process and a documentation process yeah. that has to take place there. Um which is why like with them, you know, we just call me like sports performance therapy versus like any rehabilitative nature. We, we've got a lot of rehab specialists, you know, aspiring ones that, that listen to this podcast. Um, you know, maybe people that come from like maybe a, a traditional physical therapy background, um, you know, but, but maybe not ones that were strong in their manual therapy curriculum. Right. So if you had someone that, you know, is a massage therapy student or somebody in that realm that wanted to get proficient as a manual therapist, what recommendations would you have for those folks like to, to actually go out and and attack that aspect of their professional development? Yeah. I mean, I wish I started a lot of the fashion manipulation stuff earlier. And the thing that uh, reason being is like that they made more sense to me. Mm -hmm. Like they had, I mean, they've dissected so many cadavers. Um, and, and put stuff together that made sense. Like, Hey, this is logical to me. And they've tried to prove and disprove their stuff. And so I like when people try to prove their stuff wrong, right? Cause that it's going to refine their model. Um, so that I would probably jump into that, um, uh, that more so, but it also kind of depends on what clinic and stuff you're working in. Like, I'm not sure, uh, like, uh, you know, like with an older clientele, um, you know, or like a, in hospital setting with that, like the, the idea of just moving fluid and helping those folks get moving, um, that type of manual therapy is probably not my strong suit. Um, you know, getting up and, and, and getting down. So I think that, uh, reading on it, but I think having, um, a strong manual thing, like if you're really good at active release, just get really good at it. I don't like, I think you should be able to practice something for a period of time because then you're just like kind of average at everything 
Mm-hmm. Um, like whether if you want to do active release, go into it. Um, I, if, if I could go back and do everything all over again, I would have, as soon as I was done with school, I would have started a Stecco course because it would have helped me get out some of the eyewash, um, mm-hmm. that, that we had to, you know, kind of go through and it would have made me a lot less frustrated. <laughs> a long stronger, stronger diagnostic model almost is what it seems like. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Like now, I'm not guessing. Well, I can see that his left hip's high, and I know that's going to impact his right, you know, shoulder internal rotation. But I'm looking at that from a you know a different model mm-hmm. than that. But I think that, and then I also think for people who are rehabilitative specialists or whatever, like having a model of which you trust from a corrective exercise is that be is that allowed to be said? Um, sure, absolutely. <laughs> um, or not, but like having a having a model of which you can do like a, uh, an exercise or, or something of that after, you know, you have somebody who has, you know, like a heavy valgus carrying angle, like how can we get them to like properly pronate, you know, after that and being able to like put these people in good positions afterwards is really, really important because you have some people who rely on manual therapy and only do manual therapy and that's supposed to fix everything. And that's stupid. Um, and then you have other people that are so therax and I'm like, okay, well, I can, we can get a one or two month head start on this, but again, like kind of answering your question, I would probably go back and do a lot more of like the fascia manipulation. And if that's not your cup of tea, that's fine. But I would just say it's really important to look at things more globally than we realize, right? We do it every day, like in a PRI lens, like we do it or a compression expansion model lens or a breathing lens, whatever that might be. We see this every single day that a low right shoulder is going to be a compressed right rib cage, for example you know, in this, in this example, like there's a lot of stuff going on there. We can't just be like, well, let's have him do some more shrugs or just trap raises to, to do that. Or like, no, maybe that's, you know, getting some expansion in his, in his rib cage. So I think like making sure that you have some type of model, which you can operate under and realize that there's a lot more globally going on than we realize because hips and shoulders are really going to mirror each other. Absolutely. What about for end users, right? So we, we talked about the actual clinicians wanting to get better. What about you know, a baseball player, 16 year old kid listening to this with his, you know, his parents in the car who's dealing with some chronic stuff. Like, you know, how do they find a good manual therapist? Are there certain things that you look for, um, you know, and, and where to look, you know, to kind of find those people? Yeah. I mean, obviously there's searches, right. For active release providers and, um, you know, uh, Graston and things of that nature. Uh, that's kind of, that's a, that's a hard question because right. Like, that's like saying like, how do we search for a contractor? Yeah. Well, there's a million contractors, but like sometimes you don't know if you're, they're good or not unless you have somebody who's been recommended by them. Yeah. Um, or you realize that they're not good because you use them and you're like, wow, they're terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, or they are good because you've used them. So I, I think in that case, um, I mean, we have found people so many manual therapists across the country. And I know that you, you know, you do it all the time, but I do think it's probably trying to, to find somebody out there and ask around, um, to try to find somebody who's really, really good. But things that you're going to look for are, are they staring at the clock as soon as you walk in? Are they going to treat you on day one? Or is it going to be just some complete diagnostic session to collect however much they're going to charge you that day? Um, I think at least a little bit of treatment on day one is, is appropriate. Um, I think, do they take a good medical history? Mm-hmm. Have, did they watch you move? Did, have they seen any video of you? Like asking these type of questions, are they only rubbing on your bicep when your bicep hurts? You know, are they doing any other thing or asking you, um, what other sports you've played? Yeah. Um, 
what's a day-to-day life look like for you? Are you sitting a lot? Are you standing a lot? Are you sprinting? Like, what are you, how long have you been dealing with it? Like mm-hmm. having a good questionnaire goes a long way in telling you how thorough, or, or you can go in and you see sometimes, oh, this is hilarious. I've had this happen to me. My wife made me get a couple's massage and I was so mad at her. Um, I'm like, <laughs> I'm be upset about this, but it was like circle the areas that are sore on you. And then you go in and you hand it to them. And the guy like, threw it away <laughs> like, yeah. what the heck did i just circle that for and then he just goes and does his normal massage <laughs> exactly exactly so i think that that's that's important but find the thing that bothers you the you know at least a little bit or the most um and and go from go from there right like we had that today it, like it was a side lying external rotation and there was no strength in it and it was creating a bicep tendon issue for this person well he said that's really annoying for him and it makes him think that he's not okay like, okay, well, that's our test now. Mm-hmm. Then we're going to test and retest. You know, maybe it's a shoulder flexion test. Like, hey, when I get overhead, I feel pinching in my bicep thing. But I do think that test and retest, and I really, really think having like that good questionnaire is really important. And if they tell you that you're going to need to see them this, you know, the entire whatever, you know, six months before they get better, like that's not then we're not doing what we're saying. If we're releasing scar tissue or and I'm putting that in air quotes right here. Um, if we're doing that, then why is it coming back? We're not doing what we're saying. We're saying we're doing that. Yeah. I think even just the follow-up too, like you give people homework, like even, even, you know, if you're seeing somebody for an hour, the last three or four minutes, in many cases you're coming out and they're, they're going through a couple of exercises with you or, you know, with another one of our coaches just to make sure that those changes stick and that, you know, you're not completely starting from square one. If you see them a week later, it's it's something that, you you know, should theoretically hold and get better and better with each successive treatment. Yeah. Or, or you were wrong, right? Like maybe yeah. your hypothesis is wrong. If there's times that you treat people and you know that like, you know, you did a lot of tenderness work or you did, um, you know, uh, you, you hit like, cause sometimes like when people come in, they might have multiple different like pathways that yeah. you're dealing with. So you're trying to say, well, this was the one that seems to make the most sense. So we're going to treat this. And maybe it was three or four of their symptoms got better, but it was the ones that they didn't care about nearly as much. Right. So like part of that's like a thing too, like I'm, I'm always like rechecking and making sure to, to, to do that. So like when you, and you have to be okay, like manual therapists, They'll be like, oh, you're good. You feel good, right? Like, that's good. Like, you have to be okay with somebody being like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> it, do- it still sucks. Like, okay, my thought process then was not correct. And I need to readjust that. Or I need to readjust, is this just a manual therapy thing? Or, or is this, a you know, somebody who has high blood pressure, but they're putting salt on everything, for example, right? Like, is this a, is this a lifestyle component that we need to help them with as well? And so I think it's just definitely being able to, uh, brutal honesty is always king. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Well, this is incredible in the sense that I talk to you every day and this is like a, the first time I've actually ever really had these conversations, more of an interview format where, you know, it's not just like a conversation in passing as we're collaborating on an athlete or something like that. So I, I actually picked up on some, some cool stuff. I, I appreciate you taking the time, man. Yeah, no problem, man. Appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Folks can find you on Twitter. It's at Rye underscore Shane. Um, they can obviously learn more about you through all the CSP channels that we've got out there. And, you know, if they're in the area and need to get treated, you know, you're, you're obviously super accessible, not just to our athletes, but to, to you know, anybody that, that is interested. So um, again, you're the man. Thanks for taking the time. 